Welcome to episode 10 of the Grove Podcast. My name is John King and I'm your host of the agronomy segment of our podcast. Today joining me on the podcast, we have Dan Bjorklund, our Grow Agronomy and Precision Lead within the Grow Solutions Center here at Landis. We also have Molly Tudor, who leads our Grow Business Unit, and Nyla Johnson, one of our Grow Solutions Specialists in the data section of our Grow Solutions Center. This week, we're going to update everyone on what's going on in the industry with our State of the Union on the agronomy business. Uh, we'll be diving into what's happening both on fertilizer, chemical, and then kind of some current events from Dan on uh, what he's seeing in the field. We will then transition to our main segment with Molly and Nyla regarding what's happening in the carbon markets and really what farmers need to focus on that's coming down the pipe. Finally, we'll be finishing up with the product of the month. A new product Landis is bringing to market here this spring. Uh, it's something I think I'm very excited about and I think everybody else will be too. All right, transitioning over here to, to our State of the Union on the agronomy business at Landis. I got Dan Bjorklund, our grow agronomist, joining me today. We're going to talk a little bit about fertilizer markets and what's happening there. Again, the mess that the chemical market is. I know I feel like I'm a broken record every time we get together. That's that's exactly what we talk about. And then, uh, you know, Dan's really going to run through what he's seeing in the field stresses that's coming to fruition, especially after this hot heat this past week. Dan's been all over the state the last seven to 10 days, and he's got some really good notes for everybody that, you know, I definitely need to pay attention to. So, Dan, thanks for being on here today. It's uh, it's good to connect again. It's, it's uh, our last uh, monthly podcast. Happy to be here, John. So I think the biggest thing I want to start with um, for everybody to listen to and, and kind of get to hear is the fertilizer market. Uh, the one big thing that I keep hearing from everybody, I got my sales guys calling me. I got, you know, I got different people. The farmers are calling me. You know, everybody thinks that the fertilizer market had crashed. I, I saw an article the other day from Bloomberg about it, that commodity fertilizers have completely eroded away and the prices have gone down. I think the thing that I want everybody that's listening and pays attention to, you know, maybe big media on fertilizer or anything, you know, Bloomberg's of the world know really nothing about what's actually happening in the fertilizer markets. You know, they track what the CME's maybe daily settlements are on urea. They track uh, maybe a few publications, but really what's driving a lot of this noise in the market is there is some fertilizer prices that went down significantly, primarily urea. And for anybody listening, urea is the, the highest globally traded product in the entire fertilizer commodity bucket. So, you know, when the price of urea goes down, you know, whether it's the publications, DTN or whatever, they just write that fertilizer's going down. When in reality, it's just urea. So, you know, looking back 30 days ago, you know, on urea, yeah, the there's been some pretty significant downside on that product. Today, you know, I mean, really, when you look at it, price range and trade in the last two weeks has been a $200 swing in urea from high to low. So to say where it's at today, I think it's called 500, 510 NOLA, which means you got to put about 70 to $90 to get it to central Iowa. You know, it's, it's pretty crazy where it's at, honestly, and where it's swung from. But a week ago, it was maybe a hundred dollars less. And two weeks ago, it was $150 more. So what we've had is a lot of unnatural things happen in the urea market over the last 30 days. We've had some vessels coming to the United States from different origins of the world that were on index that people that were trading in the market were dumping barges to settle a price lower to avoid risk. And really what happens with that is you just, you keep tumbling the market lower as people try to get out of the market. Also on top of that is we've kind of come to the realization that the Dakotas didn't plan enough. When you look at consumption for urea domestically, the major majority of that consumption is in the Northern Plains, North Dakota, 
South Dakota, Montana, out through the plains and Western Minnesota. So when you've had the consistent rainfall that they've had, there hasn't been enough time to really get application done. When you don't have application, you know, there's a lot of big companies up there that take five, 10 trains of urea in season, okay, as they're applying. When you don't get the barns empty to take the sixth or seventh train that you got on order, that creates a lot of unnatural things in the market. And that's what we saw. But if that's the case, that's also happening. That's not great as far as it goes for our planted numbers when we look toward what actually got planted this spring. So we got the June 30th report coming out from the USDA. It'll be interesting to see what they post. But when you've seen these kind of sell-offs in urea, you've seen a slight sell-off in phosphate, it's because there's no demand. There was lack of demand in the spring and there's no demand in the Dakotas. So that's something to consider. As it translates to the other two nitrogen products, there really hasn't been kind of price volatility that we've seen in urea. I mean, the one day I was adding it up, I think we were a 35 cent discount on urea to UAN per unit of nitrogen. So the UAN market has remained stable. The production and within UAN is a much more stable situation because there's less imported, more of it, it's pretty much all domestically import or produced. So there's not as big of wild swings there. And then really the ammonia, the Midwest ammonia prices are kind of at a point of transition here where we're starting to transition out of fall or spring to fill in fall. There really hasn't been any set prices in the market that have kind of come in and, and put that price out in the system. But, you know, a lot of people, I would say we're probably trending toward somewhere around fall ammonia being $1,200 to $1,300 to the farmers. So that's what I would expect today. When you look at the phosphates, the potash, everything else, phosphates have come under some pressure, but have definitely found a firm floor. I think when we look at potash, it's also very similar. The biggest issue, if I'm a farmer today, when I think about phosphate and potash, the retailers like Landis or like Nutrien or like others are only going to be able to take so much risk on those products. In years past, in lower commodity prices, we could take a lot more product ahead of time. The cash flow situations weren't so hard to take. I did the math on it the other day. You think about just what a 50 or 40% layer of potash and phosphates for the membership here at Landis or our customers is, you know, today it's $50 million in cash. So it's, it's a lot of money. It's a lot of risk. You know, we have to be diligent and, and not take an abundant amount of risk, but some. So I think waiting to the last minute is going to create up upward price trends in the market. And the reason I say that is because we still are trading at a two, $300 discount to Brazil here domestically. A lot of the higher priced phosphate in the market, so whether Mosaic or whoever sold it, barges that have been sold over the last 10 days at New Orleans are not going to farmers in Iowa. They're not going to farmers in the Delta. They're not going to farmers in Western Kansas for wheat. They're being loaded on a barge that's then loaded onto a ship and re-exported back out of the country to Brazil because the Brazilian price is so much better than the domestic price. So you have traders like ADM or Amaropa or bigger trading outfits that can buy enough barges to load a vessel and ship it somewhere else. So I think those are things that if I'm a farmer today, you need to consider. The other big one on potash, again, with, you know, we've, we've really stressed on it a lot here is we are not, we are still dependent as a market on Belarusian and Russian potash imports. Today, the price in Brazil is $300 more than what it is here in the United States. Today, with the price being about $300 more in Brazil than it is the United States, 
One of the big things that everybody needs to understand is Nutrien, Mosaic, these companies are publicly traded companies. They are looking at the export opportunity for Canadian potash out of, out of Canada to Brazil in a big way, as well as Southeast Asia. When you think about trying to replace 12 to 17 million tons of global potash, it's just such a significant number. And when we are not willing to pay what market is, my worry is, is there's a lot of consigned space. There's a lot of warehouse space throughout Iowa, the Midwest, whatever it may be for potash. But if you're a publicly traded company and your duty is to your shareholders, why would you fill that space versus making sales at $300 plus margin to Brazil or, you know, same, relatively same price to Southeast China. So I think that's a huge watch out. I think our farmer owners really need to be prepared to look at layering product in. You know, I know the prices are uncomfortable and they're high, but it's not always about buying it all in one day. You know, maybe look at taking a layer up for some fields that you know you're going to have some spreading on. You're going to have to do something. Lock those in and kind of see what happens within the grain market and your yields and kind of look to the future there. When you when we transition to the chemical side, fertilizer I know may sound bad, but like I'm telling you, the chemical is way worse. There's certain products next year that are going to be tough to get. I think if I'm a farmer today and I, you know, it's hard to think past this crap that we have in the ground right now, because we still have issues that, you know, Dan's going to bring up around field stress that we still need to take care of today. But, you know, I think when I look at across all the AIs that we're procuring and, and trying to propose for the farmers, we had a really awesome prepay session on fungicides this year. And the first thing I'd be thinking about next year or this fall when I'm working with my account leads or my agronomist is what fungicide am I going to put on those acres next year? Because that market is so extremely tight, it's not even funny. You had BASF last year kind of in the fall come forward and you know really tell the market that they didn't have enough supply to cover demand. What that did is, that did is then triggered everybody to run to everybody else's brands to then buy those products. The market was not ready for how much fungicide demand actually came forward. So I think it's really important that everybody looks at that as they're planning for next year. If you're going to do two fungicide applications on your corn next year for tar spot, lock it in at prepay. You know, if you don't lock anything else, make sure you get that locked in because that's a huge concern. Uh, glyphosate's going to remain a concern. I think the price is going to stabilize, but that doesn't mean that the product's going to be easier to get. Product, I think, is still going to be tough to get. But, you know, like this year, we've been able to see, we've been able to procure enough lifesaver, we've been able to bring enough stuff in to really service the acres. It's just, I don't see that price getting below 30 or below $40. I think it's going to be somewhere in the 50-ish dollars, roughly from what I'm seeing today. Metallochlor, acetochlor, again, another huge issue coming at us. Insecticides in general, just really tough. So the chemical thing, the only thing I can tell you on chemicals without really taking a ton of time is, Really stay close with the person that is your chemical supplier, be asking them questions and be planning for the future. You're going to have to plan for your next year's chemical program sooner this year than you did last year. So Dan, with that, you know, bring us into what you've been seeing. Again, you've been out across the state, you've been traveling all over the last 10 days. All right. We've got issues out there. There's no doubt. We've been hot. We've been dry. We've been too wet. We've been not enough rain. Like, Bring us in on what you're seeing. Yeah, John, um, the, the the phone started ringing, like you said, um, in the last 10 days. And I've been everywhere from Rake, Iowa, right along the Minnesota border, down uh, in the Des Moines area by Collins over by Boone, 
up by Brit again, just, just everywhere. And so I thought the best way to organize this would be to tell the stories of those fields and, and what we saw. With the context that our corn and our soybeans are living organisms and everything that occurs out there, whether it's environmental or whether it's even something we do, does have an impact on them. And that will have an impact on yield uh, down the line. So up at Rake, the farmer came in and he was concerned because, and this is what I'm seeing is guys are going out to spray their own fields. They're noticing things and that's when we get the calls. And he's going to, he's going to spray um, his beans and they were yellow. Mm -hmm. So we went up there and we looked and first thing that comes to my mind in you know, in the Des Moines lobe is that we have areas of high pH. And so maybe we're having some iron deficiency chlorosis showing up. The beans are trying to take off and we're not getting enough iron. But it wasn't in the normal spots where you would have the high, high pH. Uh, some of it was, but, but, but not all of it. So the question, and we should always do this, uh, first question was what, what program was used last year in right. corn and then what are you using this year in beans? So last year he used uh, an HPPD group 27. And that triggered the first thought. What were the environmental conditions in 2021? Fairly dry. Very dry. Yep. And so it, it wasn't as much of a classic bleaching that you'll see, like, for instance, if somebody is spraying a group 27 on a cornfield and a little drifts over into beans, you get that really bleaching look. But with the carryover, it really mimics uh, that yellowing you get with iron deficiency chlorosis, where you start to see that in the, in the, in the newer leaves. And so for me, it was a combination of stresses. And that's where we talk about field stress load. Field stress load is... Is it one? Is it two? Is right. it three? Is it five? And can we eliminate those? And if we can eliminate those, we're going to increase yield. So first of all, we got to figure out uh, uh, what it was. So in this particular case, I think it was dry conditions last year and a full rate of an HPPD. It didn't, didn't completely uh, uh, yeah, uh, break down in, uh, and then we did have some of those high pH areas where, where it was worse. So that, that was, uh, uh the first case, uh, John, I think you've also told me that you've seen some really weedy soybean fields. There has been some fields. I mean, you know, you kind of took that, I've taken the highway 20 quarter east towards Cedar Falls and whether it's there, whether it's, you know, gosh, I've been all over the state. There's clearly been issues on whatever we planned for, for bean green. And because it was either not enough modes of action, not the right modes of action, you know, there was something about it that we did there that just wasn't, it, it's not working. And I think a lot of what you and I have talked about is when we look to next year is on your bean pre, you're going to have to spend some money. If you, I mean, with dicamba, I mean, the issues on dicamba this year, not that it didn't work, but how do you get it? You couldn't get a spray in time. I mean, we just got, to, it's the 26th today or whatever it is. And, you know, six days ago, we just lived through that all Father's Day weekend on trying to get that sprayed. And it was not a lot of fun at all. I think you hit on it. Uh, and planning for next year, getting as many modes of action out there as possible is is going to be key. Because you you just don't know what, you know, what the environmental conditions are going to be. And, and this year we had 
abnormally wet conditions in the Boone area, which made it difficult. And Collins yeah. uh, made it almost, you know, very difficult to even get beans in the ground. So I went to a field over at Collins, and what happened there was that they were just trying to get the beans in the ground. Furl wasn't closing uh, everywhere as as well. Uh, came in with a PPO, which would be a natural product to use for a bean pre, but after the beans were planted, did get a rain, got down into that seed furrow, the, the beans stayed there and it reduced stand. So we, we, we saw some of that uh, as a stress. And the environmental year that we had led into that, all the windy conditions that we've had have made it really, really difficult to find those days to be able to go out and spray. And so I was looking at a field again yesterday over by Brit, where the water hemp is as tall as the V3, V4 soybeans. Right. Hasn't been sprayed yet. And we all know when you get water hemp six to eight inches, it is going to be uh, difficult. And then you look at, well, we can maybe load up on, you know, on our adjuvants and try to heat it up. And we did that. And over in the Boone area, mm -hmm. had some photos sent in to me on some beans that were looking pretty tough. And, and, and we weren't using... A PPO like like a Flex Star. Right. We were going with uh, with a different program, but the adjuvant mix really heated it up, got the weeds, and helped with the weeds. But we got a crop response. So we're seeing all of these various uh, different stresses. And and with corn, what we've seen is especially in areas that that were wet, we've had some nitrogen loss. And those areas at four or five inches, those fields are going to need to be monitored because. I know we've had some nitrogen loss, and we talked about ADAPT yeah. in that program before. The perfect program to take a look at the environment and what normally goes on back by data is saying that, you know what, you're probably down this much nitrogen. And we all know that we're heading into a time when we get up towards uh, VT and what, three to four weeks when we're going to have our maximum nitrogen uptake. The bottom line is there are solutions to a lot of these situations and you know i'm thinking about just besides those which are we seeing currently then we start transition to what can we do going into vt mm -hmm. on corn or or r1 on soybeans and i still john i might sound like a sound like a broken record here but i'm concerned about the roots right the foundation the assembly line for that plant and we've got products like Radiate, which Radiate. we've talked before, yep. that you you can time it at, at a V6, but if you look at the label, you've got opportunities to come in every 14 days after that. Now, you know, normally we wouldn't maybe look at that. You know, you'd, everything has a cost associated with it, and, and we mm -hmm. realize that. But when you look at the predictions for what July is, and again, I don't want to be that person that, from the weather side, right? Yeah, um, but if it was me, I would be doing everything that I could to build stronger root systems because right. that will buy you time. Somebody is going to get the rescue rains. It happens every year. Now, if you listen to the guys like Eric Snodgrass, right. uh, he, he'll say there's rain coming in, but he won't say who's going to get and who isn't, and that's. You know, so you're almost going to Jefferson and you're throwing the dice and you're trying to trying to figure that out. Hoping you're going to get it. Hoping that you're going to get it. So if you build the strong roots, you maybe you buy yourself an extra 10 days. Mm -hmm. And we all know what happened last August. People that had the best plants 
when those rains came in August, made a huge difference yes. in yield. It was a huge difference. Well, and back to the radiate portion, we've talked about it a lot. And then, you know, even looking at takeoff LS, I mean, there's different products that we have within the portfolio that guys can go out there, they're cost effective. Radiate, four bucks an acre. Takeoff LS, five bucks an acre. It's not something that you're going out there and taking a gamble on 10, 12, 13 bucks an acre. If you're going out and you're making another second trip on post bean spraying, throw it in there, give it a shot. Again, it's a great stress mitigation opportunity for the, for you on your acres. And in a high, you know, a high price environment, we need high yield environment. John, I'd say that you, you pretty much nailed it. Maybe this year we should call it the year of using the stress mitigators to help yep. us out because in the past when everybody kind of remembers 18 and 19, go back and, and remember how beautiful those rains came all season long. And then all of a sudden 20 came, then 21 and man, 22. I don't know what's going to happen the rest of the year, but something has changed in the last three years and stress mitigators are there to help us. They won't completely solve it if we don't get any rain, but they buy us time and they're good insurance. No, I love it. Well, thanks, Dan. I appreciate you joining me on this section of the podcast and uh, we'll keep, uh, keep looking forward to hearing from you. All right, transitioning to our main section here, uh, we're going to continue our conversations around really this carbon uh, conversation that's happening all across the uh, really the ag sector. Um, you know, carbon along with biologicals, a lot of other things we've talked about have been a big buzzword in the industry. And I got Nyla Johnson here, part of our Grow Data team, and Molly Tudy leads the charge at the Grow Business Unit here at Landis to kind of really help transition us through what we're going to talk about today, because uh, by no means am I an expert on this. And I would say, I don't know, you know, there's experts out there, but they're far and few between. And I feel like we got two of the best here at Landis by far from what your guys' experiences. So welcome today to the podcast. And it's great to have you guys on it. Thank you. Hey, John, yeah. glad to be here. Yeah. So, you know, I think kind of to start it off, we talk about the Growth Solutions Center a ton on the podcast, whether it's it's um, about the grain side, you know, obviously we have Ashley and her team on here, um, whether it's the agronomy side with Dan here sitting in the room as well. What we haven't really brought to the to the listeners really is around what is the structure of the Growth Solutions Center and what does data and sustainability really pay, play for that? So Molly, kind of run us through, you know, really what the structure is of the Growth Solutions Center and give everybody a high level of what our, we're trying to accomplish. You bet. Well, we're really excited. It's about a year ago that we launched our Growth Solutions Center and we've grown Pardon the pun there. We've grown a lot since then. So when we first launched it, it was really around the data. And uh, we quickly then went into our Grow Grain team led by Janet Smith. And they're doing phenomenal work there. She has a group of 10 to 12 people now, originators working with farmers. We have Dan leading our Grow Agronomy and Precision team. Again, and a great resource for our farmers. And then we just recently on June 1st added feed and animal nutrition. So those are the four main areas that we're working on in Grow. And it's really all about being a resource to our farmers. They can call in, ask any question, get an answer pretty much 24-7, we like to say, whether it's through email, text, phone calls, whatever they need. We just want to be that resource for our farmers. No, that's awesome. And I think my time and experience with it, obviously, we're wearing a lot of different hats here at Landis. It's been a lot of fun seeing how that's developed and, and seeing the success. So 
um, you know, kudos to you and your team on on really bringing a really nice and, and a great resource to, to our customers and customers anywhere where we can touch them. Yep. So Nyla, you know, looking at the data and sustainability part of the Growth Solutions Center, just kind of run us through, you know, what all that encompasses. Yeah. So our main initiative here is to ensure that farmers are comfortable with data because it's become such a buzzword. Big data is something that everyone's so scared about coming into ag. And we really want to take that scariness away from it while also making everyone money. Because at the end of the day, if our farmers don't make money, we don't have a business here at Landis. You know, I think that's really important too, because I think if I'm a farmer and I hear about data or I hear about carbon, there's a lot of skepticism around that, right? Because Absolutely. it's new, it's unique. But I sat in on a lot of these meetings with a lot of these other companies. And, you know, it, it, I definitely feel comfortable as, you know, and obviously every owner can't be part of the conversations we have with these companies that are bringing these new, you know, whether it's carbon or whatever it may be. But I think what excites me about being a part of some of these conversations is bringing the reality mm -hmm. to them around. We deal with farmers every day, right? We know kind of what's going to get them going. And we have you that's on staff that's literally on the front lines. Yeah. And I think that's something that one, if I'm a, if I'm a member owner of the company, we're doing a great advocacy on their behalf because you know, the last thing we probably want to bring to them is something that's one, not very profitable for them or a lot of time, but not a lot of gain. I think another really big piece of just data of what we're trying to do is preparing people for what's to come. Data is going to continue to be in our farmers' faces, whether we want them to or not, but it's, it's preparing them. And so having the ability to have myself and Amy Smith on the team of just understanding what data is and what data needs to be for a farmer and how we can monetize it for them is key. And the value of the grow data team is we're doing something that really no other co-op or ag retailer is doing. Right. We are being their resource. We will do the work for them. We do the heavy lift. We do the data entry. We find the programs. We help monetize that data all with their permission, of course. Right. But, you know, we want to take the, the heavy lift out of it for them and make it easier for them to make money off of that data also work for them to make better decisions on their farm. Yeah, well, and I think that's the important part about it too, right? It's data and sustainability, mm -hmm. right? So you're kind of really diving those two in. When I think about it too, farmers probably are, uh, some of their skepticism, well, they're thinking is, well, they're paying me, but what everybody else is getting out of it. And mm -hmm. We've been on the, Molly, you've been on the ground floor of this for a long time. There's not a lot of money for the retailer in it, but mm -hmm. you know, I think our passion at Landis, Matt, and your passion is, is this is the right thing, one, for the farmer, the right thing for our company, and we're doing it really as a true service. And I think that to me is what really differentiates that team is because we're trying to become experts on something that people don't want to be experts at yet. Right. And, and, and what data does is it connects the farmer to the consumer. Right. Yeah. It's telling the consumer how their, their food is produced, and that's what we at Landis are really trying to do, is connect our farmer with the consumer. So I think it's important too. So kind of as a transition point here, you know, what are our farmer owners options or, and, and really when you think about data, you know, anybody that's listening, you could be in Indiana, you could be in Illinois, you could be in Minnesota. Data is all encompassing, right? It's, it's, it's really a service driven type of opportunity they have with us. So, I mean, you know, anybody that's listening, that's from outside the trade territory, 515-800-GROW, we're more than welcome to have those conversations. But if you're within the land of trade territory, you wanted to call in, you know, what options are we going to provide those people? Yeah. So, I mean, Molly kind of touched on overall scope of what the Growth Solutions Center does. But on the data side, what we're going to offer them is multiple different programs on the carbon offering that we have. We have partnerships with Indigo and True Carbon, but we're not 
only going to stay with those two. We're going to continue to grow, again, no pun intended, outside of those options. Or if a grower even comes to us and says, hey, I'm part of this program. Can you guys help me just understand what data they're needing? And the main part is, is we want to help them understand the organization, what data they need. So, and there's nothing scary about that. It's what are you doing on your operation? Let's put pen to paper or let's put it in a computer and really understanding that Look, it's just what do you plant? What's your harvest? It's the what, the when, and the how. We're not trying to get into nitty gritty details like with application records, you have to know the wind speed. I, I don't care about that. Right. I just need to know what you applied when you applied it and what field you did it to. But really just making sure that we have the opportunity to stay open of what do you need as a farmer and how can we help you do that in this space? Well, I think it's, you know, it's unique too because the farmer at the end of the day, he's creating so much data. Mm-hmm. He's creating it without, you know, you and I and Molly have talked about it a ton of times, you know, mm-hmm. Amazon's business has been created on data the consumer is willing to give it, yeah. right? You know, and unknowingly, the, unknowingly, mm-hmm. you just did it by clicking and searching and do whatever you wanted. The farmer himself to creating that data, it is his, nobody else has it, but you know, it's, it's just about really, you know, and I, what I love about your team is your job is to organize it and help him understand how he can actually take it to the next level. Yeah. Absolutely. Another piece is just the fact of like taking it to the consumer. Consumers want this data. It's not something, if we can get you paid, not just like how we did with Amazon of unknowingly are giving it, the consumer wants it. They want to be educated about what we're doing. They want to know that where their food is being produced, how it's being produced is coming from whatever farm in Iowa or Indiana or wherever. They want to have that kind of not emotional, but just they want to have a tie to it. Mm-hmm. And data is the way to do that. And I think farmers are really great about telling their own stories in their little communities. But we have to be able to do it on a global standard of saying, hey, this is what I do. Come to my website, come to my mm-hmm. whatever, or just being able to like scan a code on the back of cereal box and say, hey, this came from Iowa. Well, it's clear the consumer has no clue what is really truly happened. I mean, anybody that was on our, our grow trip down south to Florida yeah. uh, witnessed it with the consumer panel, you know, whether they were mad, Absolutely. laughed or whatever they came away with that from. But, you know, the reality is the consumer only knows what is on the box, mm-hmm. not what's in it and not how it got there. So, you know, I think it's important too around that is what you guys are doing as a team is is trying to tell that whole story. And when we talk about farmer data, I think it's important to note too that when we're talking about farmer data and utilizing that data, uh, what we call downstream or with food companies or, or other food feed fuel type uh, opportunities, we're looking at that data in a very aggregated and anonymous way. So we're not selling a personal farmer's data. Right. I want to be very clear on that because that sometimes scares people. Right. Um, this is about what are we doing across Iowa to help with environmental benefits? It's mm-hmm. going to help environmentally. So it's greenhouse gas emissions, it's carbon, that kind of thing. But it's all very aggregated. It's never an anonymous. So we're not going down to in what we're doing to the farm level. There are cases like that and they're great stories to tell. But what we're doing today is is really, well, it's referred to as a mass balance approach. Yep, yep. I, I think a really key piece there is the fact that if you do any type of program with us here at Landis, we're never giving anyone your name, your farm name. We're right. going to the county level. That's it. Right. Yeah. No, I think that, you know, that's interesting information. And I think, again, as farmers learn how they can unlock financial reward for this, it's only going to speed the process mm-hmm. up. And that's kind of my thing too, you know, 
kind of bring us to circle around what brought us to Indigo Carbon. Obviously, we've made some announcements as a company around Indigo Carbon. So kind of give us a background on that. And, you know, again, I've been a part of some of these meetings and really they have what I could say is the closest thing to it so far. But, you know, Molly, kind of bring us a little bit more of what you saw. You've been a part of this journey for 10 years probably now, (laughs) and it's a long journey and it's probably still got a lot of length on it too. So kind of, you know, your background around it is, is very extensive. So yeah, you know, we still talk about the carbon markets, especially being a bit of the wild west, mm-hmm. uh, and it still is today. But we've really taken two programs out of this that we think are leading and, and we feel comfortable advocating these programs with our farmers. One of those, again, being Indigo. And what really makes Indigo stand out is is actually it's next week in Chicago at the Board of Trade. They'll be announcing that they're the only registry approved ag carbon credits that's a really big deal. Mm-hmm. And that's all based around the science and technology that they're using for their carbon program. And what's referred to in the market is MRV, which is the measurement and reporting and verification of those credits. So it's a real program selling real carbon credits, giving the farmers real dollars. And we like how it's called additionality, how they can, based on what practices they're doing today or how they might change them next year, they can increase their payout. It's a five-year program, which we like. It's not a 20-year commitment. So it's just, it's a really good program based a lot on science and technology. I think, again, the, the registry-approved credit is a really big deal and will continue to be a big deal. And it's just, they've really proven themselves to probably be the leader in the market on this. And I'll let Nyla kind of talk more about the True Carbon program through True Terra Atlanta Lakes is another one that we're looking at. Yeah, so we we have, uh, their summer programs going on right now until the end of June is when we can get growers actually into or enrolled in it but really what it is it's two different kind of pay structures but they're looking at market access which is a little bit different approach of just um, how we're paying farmers for this market access meaning we're going to look at it in two years and see where it's at and pay you that we might not give you the full we might give you less it's kind of very similar to grain of the market changes every day and so that we're going to continue to see that and Kind of attributing to that wild, wild west side of things. And it's extremely, um, it's kind of a gray area at times for farmers. And so, but the true carbon side is great because it's also a five, five year commitment. You have the opportunity to continue to get paid or you will continue to give them data one way or another. They um, have one buyer and they seem to have a great relationship with that. So I think it's a good program as well. One thing I would say is a little bit of the differences too is the True Carbon program has very limited enrollment yes. periods. Yeah. So it's June and December, I think. Yeah. Well, there's a possible program coming out in the winter time, but they are finishing up the first rounds of their summer program. They Earlier this year, they had a spring program. Whereas Indigo, we are wide open until December for our partnership with Landis. Okay. So really what it is, is they've got a buyer for a certain amount of credit. And Correct. once that... Once the rail car kind of gets full, you know, you're they're, they're going to close the window. Yeah, what you're saying on that, you know, and, and so really with Indigo kind of getting the the clearing type mm-hmm. credit, you know, they're trying to open up what would seem like a bigger, more fast Absolutely. market. Yes, yeah. um, I kind of think about it, you know, again being the fertilizer guy in the room too when fertilizer became actual tradable on the CME. There's still not a ton of liquidity there, but there's a lot more than there was before, and really what you need on anything like that is liquidity. And if the liquidity grows, 
it'll be no different than when RINs became real on the ethanol side. Mm -hmm. And once RINs became real and the liquidity was there, it, the market was created. So, you know, I think the unique thing about carbon as it pertains to a credit or anything, if it's truly going to be traded on some kind of clearing index, the buyers are going to be big companies, right? Mm -hmm. That are right. trying to minimize their exposure and they're going to have to make a call to Wall Street about what they did and when they bought it for the farmers that are, you know, it's kind of like Bitcoin mining, <laughs> right? You know, think in, in essence, you're, you're trying to mine a ton of carbon to then sell it into the market. So, I mean, it's, it's really unique. I mean, it's, it's something you definitely, you know, as a farmer, as a retailer, you have to have an open mind to because it's not a, there's nothing really set about it. I don't know. We talked about the biological market kind of on our first podcast and that was definitely the wild, wild west. And there's mm -hmm. tons of different companies coming with claims or whatever. But, you know, I think the carbon market could possibly eventually turn a little bit into that with a lot of companies yeah. trying to capture the mar the money. I think, you know, when I think about it with what we're doing, it's important to understand everybody that we are really validating what's reality and what's not reality. Because the last thing as a grower you probably want to do is spend a lot of time on a program that doesn't end up paying you a lot and you spend a wasted a bunch of time. We, we're, the good thing about us too is, you know, kind of pulling those acres together and getting in one concise direction is we now have liquidity that people want. So yes, exactly. I, I think that's the unique thing with, with what we're doing on the carbon initiative, the data initiative is in anything, in any market, you need liquidity. And when we can drive a lot of acres together as one entity, we can go create that right. for the farmer owner. And, you know, it's, I think farmers need to understand that with the carbon markets, I mean, this is real money. This mm -hmm. is real cash. We, at our Florida um, uh, December 21 uh, Grow Rewards Conference, we had three growers that we announced. Uh, we brought one up on stage, I believe, that had received money through the True, Car True Carbon Program. And one of them was fairly, well, they were all significant. One was really significant. I want to say it was between $70 and $80 an acre that he got for that program. So these can be significant dollars with the right data. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's just everything we talk about right now is all around the data. Yeah, I mean, I think around data, I think it's going to be important, again, for people to call into a NILA yeah, and absolutely. have that conversation about the data they already have, yep. whether it's in John Deere Ops Center, whether it's... Climate. Uh, we we seriously can go from whatever spectra of that scale that they're yeah. on. I, I've had growers hand me hand-drawn maps, maps with, hey, this is what I've done the last five years. And I've had guys who are fully connected with John Deere Ops or climate or whatever it is. Or you have a lot of people who are in that middle way where they're like, hey, I have it all on my monitor. Can you do anything with that? We absolutely can. So whatever, wherever they are, we can absolutely help them with their data side. No, that makes sense. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, what excites me, again, our last podcast was with Don Van Allen from Van Wall. Mm -hmm. I think about all the data points we're now creating on behalf of our farmers for what we're doing, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's something exciting. And Last month, I think we got through the board. We're going to get two of these RTK boundary gators to go out yeah. and get boundaries, get yep. physical boundaries. Not only is it great when we start looking at enrolling boundaries for the carbon programs or our data sets, it's great for the business from an application standpoint. It's great for our farmers. If we can go out and they've got a newer John Deere sprayer with his act apply and RTK, we go do the boundary for him. Mm -hmm. And now he's more efficient on his operation. Plus, we've created a really great boundary for his carbon program. Yeah, And what's key in all that you just said there, John, is that we are here to help them every step of the way. Yeah, There's a resource that landed us, whether it's through Grow, whether it's through Dan and the, and the agronomy team, 
we want to help them with this. Yeah. And and let us help you. Don't be intimidated by any of that. Well, I think it's it's unique how much overlap there is, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's a lot of just not no nonsense things that we can do together that one makes us more efficient or makes them more efficient and then also creates another right. purpose that maybe they haven't even thought of. So I think that's why 515-800-GROW, get a hold of Nyla, get a hold of Amy. Something that everybody should at least be educated on or have some kind of conversation around, even if you're not enrolling into it, it's, it's a great, have a conversation with somebody that knows what they're doing on it because there's gonna be a lot of people with a lot of opinions. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to talk about, I've, I've talked about it a little bit already today around in the earlier, sec- earlier segment on the agronomy side around Bloomberg posting articles on fertilizer. And really it's, it's one thing, but it's really not that, right? There's going to be a lot of noise around this space where people are going to try to paint a narrative. But if you're not dealing with people on the ground floor, it's hard for you to really understand what's reality and what's something somebody's going to print from a Bloomberg or whatever it may be. And, and when it comes to the data piece, just like you said, it's really... It's starting, there's baby steps. Yeah. You don't have to do everything all at once. Just call and start one field, 180 acre track, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Just get started at a small scale and we can help you then grow from there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's a great call. I mean, it's, it's kind of like dipping your toe in the water, yeah. right? See what it is. And, and, you know, if it's not for you at the end, at least you try. Right. right? So... Awesome, guys. Well, I really appreciate your guys' time today. You know, obviously, again, it's it's a big initiative that we have here at Landis. We're, we're putting the farmer at the center of everything we do with around data and Absolutely. really trying to lean into the future with this one. So, you know, definitely feel confident that we've got the right people on the bus to really point us in that direction. And can't thank you guys enough. Yeah, 515 grow. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. All right, transitioning to the product of the month, uh, one of my favorite segments. I got Dan Bjorklund here, grow agronomist with me. Dan, how are we doing? We're doing good. All right, buddy. Hey, you know, I think uh, as we approach here, we're into June. You know, I'm thinking about what's going on in the fields. We're about a month away or less from fungicide timing. The product we're bringing doesn't have a definite name yet today because it's going to be a Landis uh, proprietary product that we're working on, but I definitely want to get everybody aware of it that are, as we're approaching this time with where everything's at, we're looking at, you know, a slow release nitrogen product that we're going to bring to market. It's going to be a 24% nitrogen, one full percent boron products can be very similar to a product called Coron, which has been around for decades. What we're bringing here is not a new practice to anybody in the Midwest that's grown corn for a while. But what I think is unique about our product that we're trying to bring to market is that full percent of boron. Coron or a lot of other similar products tend to range toward that half percent of boron. And, you know, here at Landis, you know, Dan, we've had a lot of conversations about it. Help me explain to people why that full percent of boron at Tassel is an important thing. Well, we've already talked about some of the stresses that we are seeing this year. And boron is absolutely critical for pollination. And to hold on to those kernels, um, the, the, the time when you can lose kernels is at the blister stage when you're looking at corn. Anything that we can do to mitigate that stress. And I would, I, I would say no one is arguing the fact that we have been stressful. This is uh, just a totally different year. And having that extra uh, boron is really going to help. And if you look at individuals who win corn contests every year, yeah. This is a key component of what they do, right 
just prior to pollination time in corn. Well, and I mean, you look at it, you know, everybody's seen the graphs of, you know, nutrient uptake by growth stage, right? And nitrogen's highest, most uptake part is at this, right? So, you know, a lot of people will say, well, it's not actual in going in the soil. Is it, why is that important? But, you know, when you really get down to it, nitrogen at some degree is nitrogen, right? And it's all about part of the slow release, um, part of the, um, chemical makeup of the product is the ability to get that product into the plant um, leaf area and then so the plant can consume it. But you know, when I think about that too, from the nitrogen and the boron standpoint, that extra 1%, whether you're looking at it from other products as well, we could do a boron only. But when you look at truly the, you know, not the nutrient uptake at that time of the year, this is a great combo product, in my opinion, to really hone in on maximizing yield. Um, I think it's absolutely critical. When you talk about plants, and we've talked about these plants as factories for the last several months, when you think of it uh, and, you, and, and you go through and, and realize that it's running 24-7, mm-hmm. anything that you can do to boost that production of that uh, factory is going to increase the output, which basically is going into the ear and that's our warehouse and whatever we're filling in that warehouse is going to be increased yield for us. And so I, I really like to focus on the fact that, you know, we're talking about something that is a live entity mm-hmm. and um, we're, we're just, we're giving it just a little bit of supercharge uh, right at the critical time uh, of maximum uh, nitrogen uptake. And, and then obviously with the boron for pollination, boron is the, one of the critical nutrients for pollination and then holding that seed set. No, I think that's a, those are great points. And, uh, you know, anybody that's listening, that's looking for some product here at fungicide application or already has some fungicide booked with us for fungicide application, make sure you reach out to your account lead. Again, that's going to be a slow release nitrogen, a 24001 boron, one gallon rate per acre at tassel with your fungicide. Again, uh, not a concept that's new to the, to the market, but really, truly, I think is going to be a great product and a differentiator in the market. So make sure you call us here locally with your local account lead or 515-800-GROW for us to get that locked in. Thank you for joining us again on this month's Grow Podcast. Special thanks to our guest, Molly and Nyla from the Grow Solutions Center and bringing us some information on data and carbon that is not readily available and something that's hard to find. As well, thanks Dan Bjorklund, our grow agronomist, for coming on and giving us a great snapshot of some current events that are happening out there in the fields of Iowa. If you have any further questions regarding anything we talked about today, please call us at 515-800-GROW, and the team will be sure to get you in contact with myself or Dan directly to get those questions answered. Again, thank you for the support of the Landis business. Mm-hmm.